your scripture reading this morning um, is from Acts 15, verses 1 through 31. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses." The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Amen. Amen. That's your sermon for today. You're dismissed. Kidding, of course. I love God's word, speaks life to our bones, guides our hearts.
It's good to get into it with you today. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the associate pastors here, and it's really an honor to be able to speak to you today out of God's Word. Now, we're going to jump into this passage here. We can't get into everything that is contained in what you just heard, but we are going to look at sort of two key sections, and we'll do it in four parts. First, we're going to look at some history of the Judaizers in this first council. We'll figure out what that's all about. And then we'll take a look at some application points as we explore the decision and the implications of the decision. So jumping right in here, number one, who are the Judaizers? Western Christianity, we have a bit of a problem, and that's that we tend to have a void in our teaching about where we came from. I think we tend to forget sometimes that Christianity really began as a Jewish religion. Jesus, after all, was a practicing Jew himself and was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And so the early Christians were simply just a sect of the Jews. Uh, In fact, they were basically a group of Jewish people that rightly acknowledged Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, they began to follow him. And that's how Christianity got started. Now the concept that a Jewish Messiah would indeed redeem all nations was telegraphed all the way through scripture, but some people didn't see it quite coming. But going back to Genesis 10 and 11, we see some of this starting to shape up. Here's what happened. You've got the Tower of Babel event. Right, God takes all the people of the earth, he separates them into 70 nations. The Bible says he actually disinherits all of the nations. Fast forward Genesis 12, we see God reach down, grab Abraham and say, out of you, I'm going to start a new thing. And he began this process that would ultimately be a redemptive process for all the other nations that had just been disinherited. I think this starts to come into focus in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out, I would argue symbolically, 70 disciples to go and proclaim the kingdom of God has come. This plan of redemption, it's been snuck in through all of scripture, through all of time, and then Jesus decides, I'm going to make this as plain as I can in the Great Commission, and he says, go into, you can finish it, all the world. Now, we don't really start to see this in play until Acts chapter 10. It was preached on just a few weeks ago, so I won't cover it in its entirety. Suffice to say, we had a Gentile named Cornelius. We had Peter, who was a Jew. God gave Peter a vision and said, go to this man and proclaim to him the truth of Jesus. He did, and all of his household was saved, and the Spirit of God fell on all of them. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to try to out-God God. We start trying to put things on people that he never intended. And such was the case in Christianity. Fast forward 13 years from the event of Cornelius, we find the church in trouble. And the problem has to do with the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers, they were Jews by race and culture who had rightly seen Jesus as the Messiah. So the facts of the gospel weren't really up for debate. The truth is there was too many witnesses. Paul Paul tells us that there were 500 people that saw the risen Jesus all at one time and a smattering of others that saw him along the way. I think we have some lawyers in the room today, but the truth is you don't have to ask them what would happen if you go to make a case and line up 500 people that all start saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. You're going to win your case, right? So the facts of the gospel were not so much under question. The issue was the interpretation of those facts. They saw Jesus rightly as the Messiah, but they missed the heart of his message. And what they did was they were going to these Gentiles and telling them, oh, that's fine, you believe in Jesus, but now you've got to be circumcised first. 
Now, how many know you walk up to a grown man and tell him, that's fine, you know Jesus, but now you've got to be circumcised. I can just think of a few questions that start to come to mind for both the men and women. But here's the deal. The real question was not, should they be circumcised, but must they do anything to be able to come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah? See, the Judaizers believed that for somebody to become a Christian, they had to first become a Jew. The issue wasn't even about circumcision. Circumcision wasn't even the only issue. It was just sort of a representative issue. The truth is the Judaizers wanted them to fulfill the entire Mosaic law. So not just circumcision, but Sabbath observation, ritual washings, dietary laws, dress codes, keeping of the feast, etc. And oh, by the way, did you know that today we still have Judaizers in our midst? Now, many of them are good-hearted Christian people who think, I would contend in error, that we have to maintain all the law of Moses and become a cultural Jew in order to be a Christian. Now I'm going to tell you some truth today that that is an error. The Bible tells us it's Jesus plus nothing. So no matter how much people want to come and try to tell you, you've got to do this, 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 and become this cultural thing before you can come to Jesus... Scriptures tell us differently, and I would suggest to you that Acts chapter 15, among others, flatly refuses that idea. We'll get into that some more in just a minute. I'm starting to get ahead of myself. We'll get back to our story here. So we find Paul and Barnabas, they've been out preaching the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, and everything's going great, but then these Judaizers come along and say, in order to even be eligible to be a Christian, you have to first keep the law. Now, Paul does not sit on this lightly. The Bible says that not even for a moment... Did he stand by and let that take place? In fact, it says there was a great dissent among them. That means these brothers had some fights. This was something worth fighting over. Now, we shouldn't fight over everything, but how many know truth is worth contending for? Now, from where we sit, this fight may seem sort of simple and easy, but from where they were, this is a complex, complicated, highly nuanced situation that came at the intersection of culture and religion and had the most paramount of implications to these people who are now trying to to follow Jesus. And therefore, being right on this and being in unity on this was so important that it brought together anybody who was anybody in the early church. They all came together at a council that's become known as the Council of Jerusalem. Remember, things got so bad in Antioch that they said, hey, Paul, Barnabas, you guys, we're going to need you to go down to Jerusalem confer with the elders and apostles and see if we can get on the same page about this. One of the things I love about Paul was actually tucked into the passage that we just read. See, Paul had come face to face with the Messiah and he knew the gospel in and out. So while people were challenging him, you can be sure about this. Paul was not headed to Jerusalem to make sure his theology was right. So bit of humor that you may have missed. Along the way, on his way to Jerusalem, he stops off at all these other churches and he's telling them about all the Gentiles that had come to faith in Christ, having not even known about the law of Moses, and yet they received the Spirit. As if to say, God's already decided this thing. Why are we still talking about it? And he eventually makes it to the meeting. And if you've ever been in a meeting like this where important things are being discussed, you know you generally have two kinds of people. You have people who have something to say, And then you've got some people that just have to say something. (laughs) Now, some of the believers in this meeting were Pharisees. We don't often think about Pharisees as believers because Jesus was so hard on them. But let me just tell you, when you see a man die on a cross and then see him walking down the street next week, I mean, it's hard not to believe what you see. 
So many of the Pharisees who had argued and fought with Jesus after his resurrection couldn't deny the facts, came to him and said, okay, you're the risen Christ. We put our faith into you. But they still didn't have it quite right. And so these Pharisees at the meeting had the same problem as the Judaizers that were giving Paul a fit in Antioch, and they couldn't help themselves. They showed up and they had to say something. These Gentiles, they should comply with the law of Moses. They should be circumcised. They should keep the feast. They should dot, dot, dot. Then Peter stands up. Now here's somebody who actually has something to say. Peter starts to recall what we just talked about a few minutes ago, how God had chosen him to go to Cornelius. He sent him a vision and said, hey, Peter, what used to be unclean is no longer unclean. Don't call something unclean that I have made clean. That's what he told Peter. I go down there and tell him the truth about Jesus, and I'm going to pour out my spirit, and that is precisely what happened. Peter reminds them that God made no distinction between the Jews and Gentiles when he cleansed their heart by, heart by faith. And then he goes in hard on the Pharisees, and he tells them this. Listen to me. You are putting God to the test by trying to put a yoke of bondage on people that he has taken off of them. Now, how many know When a man of God or woman of God, someone in authority stands up and says, you're putting God to the test, you might want to just pause and listen. Peter goes on and he tells them, we of the circumcision will be saved by the grace of Jesus in the same way as them. Let that sink in for a minute. Here are these guys who are dying on a hill that you have to be like me to come to him. And Peter says... Not that they're going to be saved like us, but that we are going to be saved like them. Once Peter makes this issue clear, the room goes silent. All the chatter stops. The bright ideas and need to talk all cease. And it's in that silence that Barnabas and Paul begin to speak. Remember what they did on their way there. Well, they start to do that again. Paul and Barnabas begin to recount <clears throat> and tell of the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. God did it. In other words, he's saying to the Pharisees, you can have your opinions, but God has already spoken. Now, how many know when God speaks something, it doesn't matter what anybody else's opinion is about the matter. We come up with all kinds of clever ways to work ourselves into frenzies over things that God's already spoken on. Sometimes it's good to remember what God already said. It's a little side note. You start wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? Go back. What's the last thing God told you? Keep doing that until he tells you something else. Because people will give you all sorts of things to think about. But when God said, let that be enough. And what God had said is, I see a people in need of a savior. So I'm coming to them in my mercy. I'll accept them and empower them, not on the basis of their merit, but on the basis of my son. And I will confirm it all by giving him my spirit, something I alone can do. Now, I can desire for you to be filled with the spirit. You can desire to be filled with the spirit. But unless God confers that upon you, you won't have it. It's something only God can do. Therefore, we can't argue with it when it happens. Argue all you like, but God has spoken. So this brings us to a decision. The council's now heard the arguments. The Pharisees have said what they had to say. Peter said what he had to say. Paul and Barnabas said, this is what's going on. And then James stands up 
This is James, the brother of Jesus, not to be confused with the James you heard preached about last week who lost his head. That was James, the brother of John, two different people. At this point, James, also known as James the Just, he had risen to a bit of prominence in the first century, and we find him here presiding as a judge of sorts over the council, and he stands up, and he also, by the way, has something to say. This, for me, is where things will really start to get good. James jumps right into an Old Testament passage from Amos 9. All right, now he's quoting from Amos 9, but he changes a few things about it. He's doing theology along the way to apply what the prophet said in Amos 9 to his current situation. And I think this is fascinating, so stay with me for just a moment. We're going to take a look at these two things. If you could, please, let's pull up Amos 9. This is from a very literal translation and see what it says. This is what would have been in the mind of James in this moment. It says this, On that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and I will repair its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins, and will build it like the days of old. Thus they may take possession of the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh who does this. That's Amos 9. James has in his mind. Acts 15 tells us that he's quoting from this. Now let's look at how it comes through in Acts 15. After these things, I will return and build up again the tent of David that has fallen. And the parts of it that have been torn down, I will build up again and restore it. So that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. Now did you catch that? Did you see a bit of the difference? James is quoting from the book of Amos, but he gets to the part about the remnant of Edom. Now, if you don't know who that is, this is really important. The remnant of Edom is the descendants of Esau. You have Jacob and Esau. And Edom is the remnant of Esau. Now, he takes that and says the remnant of Esau actually means all the rest of humanity. And then he takes what's called all the nations and says that's the Gentiles. Now, this is, may seem basic to you, but it's fascinating for me because he's quoting from Scripture, changing it a bit, but not in a way that fundamentally changes anything. It just reinterprets it for us and sticks it back in our same Bible. They're both inspired word of God. So we should look through that, that, that lens there. Now, if you hear about Jacob and Esau, one thing that may come to mind is Malachi 1 that says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now, this verse gets totally misused, in my opinion, to prop up some theological ideas that I don't have time to deal with today. But what I do want you to see here is that James, who is a Jew among Jews, is reminding the people that in Jesus, what was torn down is being rebuilt. Esau, who you think God hated because you misunderstood what he said, was actually in God's mind all along. There was always a plan to save Edom. There was always a plan to come and rescue those who were far off. In other words, saving all the nations had always been a part of God's plan. And by the way, as James tells us, it's to save Gentiles as Gentiles. Not to make them become Jews, but to come to Yahweh through the provision he made in Jesus, the Messiah. So James makes this statement and concludes that these cultural Jews should not cause any more difficulty to the, than the, to the Gentiles and should not try to make them conform to the Mosaic Law. What he does do is this. He says, we should send a letter back. Send a letter back and let them know, hey, 
Yeah, there were some people from Jerusalem. We didn't tell them to say what they said, but here's what we do say. We tell you to abstain from the pollution of idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. And beyond that, no greater burden will we put on you. Now, this is a fundamental message for us because what James is trying to make as clear as possible is that Gentiles will never have to take on the cultural identity of the Jews in order to be accepted by God. Now, if you've spent any time in this church at all, then you've heard us talk about the fact that there is no one culture that could save. Cultural adaptation has never saved anybody and it never will. In fact, even in the Old Covenant, just so you know, You could come in and become part of the Jewish people and you could do all of their cultures, observe all the things they observe, dress the way they dressed. And let me tell you something. If you didn't have a loyal belief in your heart to Yahweh as the most high God, you were not saved. Cultural adaptation and doing the works of the law has never saved anyone and it never will save anyone. Now it is true that every element of culture cannot be accepted within Christianity. But the things James brings up and tells them these things have to go are all associated with idolatry. I think he was drawn from Leviticus 17, 18. You can look at that later and see some parallels on your own. But what he doesn't do, he doesn't come in and say, you Gentiles, you got to take the Jewish culture. You don't have to take our language. You don't have to take circumcision. You don't have to keep the Sabbath like we do. You don't have to keep the feast. None of it. Then you might ask, well, what are the implications of the things that James said? And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. I think James could have just simply said it like this. Listen, you on this side and you on this side, it is Jesus plus nothing. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say he sent them a letter with a list of some things and now you're saying it's Jesus plus no thing? Yes, I am. But here's how. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted to take Jesus plus their cultural traditions. To that, James says, hey, if you as Jews want to observe the law of Moses, so be it. But it's not required because it's Jesus plus nothing. On the other hand, James tells Gentiles, listen, you got to leave your practices of idolatry. You can't bring that stuff in to a relationship with Jesus because for you as well, it's Jesus plus nothing. So to these Gentiles who would want to come into the family of faith, the answer for them is the same answer that it is to the Pharisees. Say it with me now. Jesus plus nothing. Now let's take a moment here and talk about how idolatry works today. Idol worship is definitely connected, I would argue, in in both how we see it in the Bible as well as in many other cultures around our world today that sort of function in a more supernatural way of thinking. Idolatry definitely is the worship of other supernatural beings that are not Yahweh, that are not the Most High God. So idolatry is not less than that. But Colossians 3 and 5 tells us it's actually more than that. It tells us that the earthly things within us can also be be, uh, be idolatry and can bring about the wrath of God. It's in your Bible. Check it out. New Testament, Colossians 3 and 5. The earthly things in you are idolatry and will bring about the wrath of God. Now, among this list uh, in Colossians about idolatry, Paul mentions something called covetousness as idolatry. Now, we normally think about covetousness as simply meaning that we want something that someone else has. Uh, And it does mean that, but it also means more. 
Covetousness is something that starts in the heart and becomes a craving, a wanting, a longing, a desire, not just to have somebody else's stuff, but to have something, anything more than a desire for Jesus. When you find your heart longing for something more than him, just be honest about it. Call a spade a spade and say, God, there's covetousness in my heart. Come and deal with it. And I'm going to get a little personal with you here today, and this is, this is fresh bread. <clears throat> when I come to talk about idolatry, listen, the Lord has delivered me from multiple idols in my life. But just yesterday, the Lord spoke to me and said, don't be going back to stuff that's old. You know, yesterday's manna has worms in it. It was good for then, but right now you need fresh bread. So this is fresh bread for you that I'm right in the midst of. Some of you may know that back in January, I sort of set myself on a course here to change my health. I was very unhealthy. I had uh, gotten to the point where I was dealing with high blood pressure. I was dealing with chronic asthma. I was facing fears that I would never be able to walk my daughter down the aisle or maybe even see that moment. Sort of very aware of this. All of last year, I had a bit of an on-again, off-again relationship with my own health. Thanks to good brothers like my friend Galen just constantly asking me, how's your health? What are you doing? Okay, all right. But the seed begins to penetrate. And in January of this year, I looked up and I was at the heaviest I had ever been and the most unhealthy that I had ever been. And there was a time there that I decided it was, a change was needed. So this picture you see here was this year, January 22nd. It was on my birthday. And with the encouragement of my wife, the rest of my family, and some close brothers and sisters, I decided the next day to embark on a journey, a lifestyle change. I'm not on a diet, so we're clear. A lifestyle change. And, and my desire wasn't necessarily all that holy, although I suppose to be healthy is, can be holy. So I started out on this road, and then a couple months into it, I'm sitting at a table one night, and I'm working. And for some reason, I'm overwhelmed with sadness, feeling depressed. Now, if you know me, I'm not really prone to, depress, to depression. I may be prone to seriousness, but not sadness so much. But I find myself, I'm just feeling sad. I'm not thinking of sad things. I'm not experiencing pain. I'm not taking on the burdens of somebody else in this moment. I'm just trying to do some work that was pretty administrative, to be honest with you. But I'm feeling sad in the moment. And all of a sudden, I realize, I become aware that in the back of my mind, I'm sort of rotating through a list of places that I could go get some food to make me feel better. That revelation was like a shotgun going off right behind my head. It came out of nowhere and caught me by complete surprise. So I did get in my car and I did go for a drive, but not to get something to eat, but to talk to Jesus and say, what is this inside of me? This demanding to put food in my mouth in order for my soul to feel right. And God began to speak to me and he said, let me just make this as clear as I can for you. If you approached alcohol the way you approach food, you would be an alcoholic. I know you love your wife, but if you approached sex the way you approach food, you'd be cheating on her every day of the week because you are using food the way people use alcohol and use sex and use drugs. That was not easy for me to hear. 
you could have come and tried to tell me, Nate, food's an idol to you. And I would have given you all the reasons why it wasn't. Probably had some really great answers as to why food wasn't an idol. But when God comes along and says, this is a problem, well, then you got to deal with it. Or you can sear your conscience. And let me tell you, that's not something you want to do. So I'm in this moment, I'm trying to deal with this and the Lord just provokes me. And so I have to go through this moment of sort of confession and lordship all over again and say, God, I don't want food to be an idol in my life. I don't want it, but I still don't understand it. So then he begins to bring to mind for me all these moments in time when he allowed me into a space of discomfort because he's standing there watching, waiting for me to turn to him in this moment. And instead I turn to food. He reminds me of times when I was frustrated and upset and I couldn't deal. So I went and found peace over pizza instead of turning to him in prayer. You understand? This is real talk. He began to remind me of one time after another, after another, after another, after another, where my soul was in disrepair and I went to food to try and fix it. And the truth of the matter is that that was idolatry. Now, it's been 174 days since that day, and I made a bit of progress in my health along the way. And that's all fine and good, but here's the point. This is what I have to tell you about all of this. When there's something inherent to your life, when there's something inherent to your cultural identity, that takes preeminence in your heart over Jesus, the Messiah, you have to recognize that thing is rooted in idolatry. And if you're trying to keep that in the mix of your walk with Jesus, you're not really living Jesus plus nothing. I did it. I'm going to tell you right now, every person in this room does it. We all walk in the flesh from time to time, but Jesus wants to deliver us from that. So when there's something in your life rooted in idolatry and you make contact with the gospel... That has to go because the gospel has come. Jesus has come to set you free and to set me free of our personal idols, our cultural strongholds, and any other thing that gets in the way of our heart for him. Truth of the matter is, is our hearts don't have enough space for Jesus plus anything else. So you see, it can't be Jesus plus the law, but it can't be Jesus plus idolatry. It has to be Say it with me again. Jesus plus nothing. Now you might look at this list that James sent out in the letter and you might hear my story and you may say, hey, look, I ain't got a problem with meat sacrificed to idols. I've been to a lot of barbecues. I ain't never seen nobody doing that before. Or maybe you would say, I don't have a problem with food. That's your problem. By the way, some of y'all healthy people, y'all got food idols too. I'm just trying to tell you. You look good and all, but something behind that. But here's the truth of the matter. If your issue isn't my issue and your issue isn't their issue, I'm glad that's not your issue, but that doesn't mean you don't have an issue. I'm going to do something that may surprise some of you and quote from John Calvin here, but he's right on this point. He says, the human heart is a factory of idols. So it may be true that that issue is not your issue, but here's what is true. Every day we take a step and we're still cloaked in flesh Our heart will just produce one idol right after another. 
This is also, by the way, why yesterday's manna is no good, because you might have successfully, with the power of Spirit of God, put that idol to death, and the moment you take another step, there's another one creeping back up. So you can't live on what he did yesterday. You've got to see what he's trying to do in you today. Otherwise, the idols creep and take over your heart. Now, you might also look at this passage a little bit suspect and say, well, that was just for them. And I don't understand what the issue was they even had to begin with, with people washing hands or having to be circumcised or why they were sleeping with temple prostitutes. I don't even get any of that stuff. That doesn't apply to me. But let me tell you, they might look at our lives and wonder why we make such a big issues about things like body image or why we go into debt just so we can accumulate more stuff. Or why we spend so much time on Facebook trying to see how many likes we can get. Or seeing what other people's lives are like and how we wish I could be. Y'all, come on. Everybody lies on Facebook. Facebook is about as much reality as the dang bachelor. It is not real. It is not real. Guilty. You know what? Guilty. Here's why. I'm more than happy to show you pictures of me and my beautiful wife on vacation. I ain't about to show you a video of me and her fighting or me correcting my kids when they did something wrong because it's all my fault, of course. Uh, but but I, when we get to this Facebook, we go, man, I wish my life was like that. It's not even real, but God still calls it idolatry. Now, we're starting to run out of things to say that ain't my issue. You see, if we try to live a Jesus plus life, we can't bear it. Our idols will kill us just like theirs were killing them. The Israelites couldn't bear the law. That's why Peter said, don't try to put something on them. Even our fathers and us could never bear. But James in his wisdom knew the Gentiles, they couldn't bear their idolatry. And the truth of the matter is, is you and I can't bear either one. That's why it has to be Jesus plus nothing. Peter told them, we're going to be saved in the same way as these Gentiles. And I want to suggest to you that we will be saved in the same way as well. And that's by coming to terms with the fact that it has to be Jesus plus nothing. And when we get that, we'll begin to realize that Jesus plus nothing is actually everything. By saying, Jesus, I want you more than anything else. I want to reject the yoke of bondage. He's trying to enslave me. I want to come to you. I want to experience the freedom that you bring. Jesus plus nothing means saying no to the bondage of the law, but it also means saying no to the bondage of idolatry. Now, I've got to deal with something today. I can't come to this passage and not talk about this. There's some of you in a room this size for sure. There are some of you who are dealing with the bondage of thinking that it's your merit that gets you saved. And some preacher somewhere along the way has lied to you and told you when you stumble and fall, you've lost your salvation. You better not get upset in your car and then have a car wreck because you're going to hell. Oops, bad timing. I'm here to tell you the truth, which is that that is a complete lie. You're not saved, you can clap. You're not saved by your merit, so you can't lose your salvation by your merit. You can try to be good all you want to, but let me tell you, being good enough will never be enough. You can't work your way into heaven by scoring a C on a morality exam. Feel free to try, 
but it's not going to work. And there's some people here today that when you find yourself dealing with flesh and you're working through your sanctification process, you do something stupid and then you lay awake at night, all night, saying, oh man, I can't believe I did that again. God, I can't, that's not who I want to be, Lord, but I know you, you turned your back on me because I sinned and I, I just want you to take me back. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 please accept me again. I'm going to try harder tomorrow. I'll do better next time. I promise. I promise. And it's like the 10,000th time that you've made that promise. I'm just here to tell you that is bondage. This may make some of you uncomfortable from a holiness background. I believe in holiness, and we're going to get to that in just one second. But that is bondage. And Jesus plus nothing means casting that off and realizing that it is in our loyal belief to him as the one true God that brings about salvation. Let's talk about this, and we're going to look at the book of Romans as I begin to wind down here. Romans 6.14. We'll see if this is clear enough for you. Romans 6.14 says, Sin is no longer the master over you because you are no longer under the law but under grace. Clear enough? Now let's keep reading. 6.15 says, What then? Shall we sin all the more because we're not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Let's keep going. Do you not know that to whomever you present yourself as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to whomever you obey? whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Here's the issue. Who are you presenting yourself as a slave to? Are you presenting yourself as a loved slave to Jesus because you've seen his goodness? You've tasted of his mercy to the point that now you want to present your own life as a living sacrifice for him? Romans 12.1 is the preeminent verse on worship in the New Testament. And it says, offer your bodies as an obedient sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship, or some versions will say your reasonable act of service. And here's what's happening in Romans 12.1. It's sort of the conclusion of Romans 11. I don't know where they put, come up with some of these chapter divisions in the Bible. It's always good, by the way, to like read between the chapters because you'll miss stuff if you don't. But the end of Romans 11 is talking about having seen the mercy of God, tasted the mercy of God, we respond in obedience and therefore offer your bodies as a living sacrifice at your reasonable act of service. That word reasonable in the Greek is a word called logikos. And if you're a Greek scholar and I just mispronounced it, I apologize. It's L-O-G-O-K-A-S. And what it means is logical. That would be another very good translation Put right there. It's your logical act of service. I'm a bit thirsty right now. There's a bottle of water. I'm going to grab it and take a drink. Why? Because it's the logical thing to do. I'm not working for something. I'm just doing what's logical. When we come face to face with the mercy of God, it's logical to say, you get it all. You get all of me. You get all of me. Or... You can keep on pretending and keep on presenting yourself to the idols of your heart, to cultural pressures, to greed and the need to be somebody and get ahead, and you can miss what God has for you. When you came in here today, as you look back on yesterday, were you presenting yourself to a distorted view of who God says that you are? Were you bowing down to cultural pressures of beauty? I need to tell you that presenting yourself as an obedient slave to cultural pressure, to lust of the flesh, to an identity that's different than the identity God gave you. I'll take this the wrong way, but it just means you're an idol worshiper. 
And when I do it, it means I'm an idol worshiper. And what James is saying in this letter is, it can't be Jesus plus your idols. It's got to be Jesus plus nothing. We cannot be idol worshipers and Jesus worshipers all at the same time. Now, last bit here. In his mercy, let me just tell you this. In his mercy, God will patiently wait until you're ready to deal with your idols. I'm not suggesting that if you haven't dealt with your idols, it means you can't be saved. Provided you're in deception. Deception means you don't know. You're blinded to it. I did not believe that food was an idol for me. You could not have convinced me that food was an idol for me until Jesus came along and put his finger on my heart and said, oh, yes, it is. Now, when Jesus comes and puts his finger on your heart and says, there's some idolatry right here, now you have a choice to make. Are you going to surrender the idolatry to him or are you not? It's either Jesus plus nothing or it's not. Both sides of this argument can look at each other and say, it's Jesus plus you've got to act a certain way. But Jesus is standing in the middle saying, it's me plus none of y'all's dumb ideas. It's me plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And Psalm 16 tells us that when we pursue God, in the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. Now you keep pursuing your idols and you're going to find anger and anxiety and depression and sadness and suicide and all kinds of horrific things. But when you pursue the presence of God above everything else, he's going to say, come into my presence and in my presence is the fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. So what do you want? Do you want to live in anxiety and depression and frustration and confusion and all that goes along with it? Or do you want to come over to this side and say, I want to live in the presence of God with joy that doesn't stop with pleasures evermore, with peace that passes all understanding. Guess what that means? You can't understand it. That means when stuff is bad, but your heart is still at peace, you're going to be confused about it. But that's God working inside of you and doing something you can never do on your own. Which one do you want? This one is Jesus plus nothing. This is Jesus plus something. I believe today, because let me tell you, this isn't my bright idea. This is the word of God that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword that can pierce between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And when we come to the word of God and hold it up against our own hearts, Jesus' finger comes out. I just want you to close your eyes with me as we begin to close. It's without a doubt that the finger of God is touching some hearts today. And when Jesus touches your heart, you got a choice. You can sear your conscience and ignore him, or you can say, I really believe in Jesus, plus nothing. And if you've got something in your life today that he's putting his finger on, I just want you to hold your hands out in front of you with your palms up. I'm begging you to not let your pride keep you from putting your hands out in front of you. God of the universe who made everything you've ever seen or comprehended is in the room and available to take the things out of your hands that need to come out of your hands. Doesn't mean he can't meet you on Tuesday or Thursday, but I'm just telling you, he's here right now. Today can be a day of freedom if you want it. So Lord, I just pray for these hands that are out. Lord, I pray for the hearts that have been captivated by idols. Lord, I pray for those who've lived in fear, trying to earn their way into your good graces. Those who've been deceived by legalists and those who've been deceived 
by easy grace. Neither of those have a place in Jesus plus theology. So we come and give our hands to you and our hearts to you and our lives to you and say, make us, Romans 12, 1. Make us living, obedient sacrifices in body, mind, and soul. Lord, would you come and touch our hearts and do what only you can do. Lord, I just want to pause. This is a bit heavy and hard on our hearts, but I want to thank you for your goodness. You're a good God. As we sang earlier, oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. It's so easy to love you. It's so easy to love you. It's so easy to love you, Jesus. Because you're wonderful. You're wonderful. Lord, I thank you that you've made it easy for us to love you because you first loved us. I thank you that your end for us is freedom and liberty, not bondage and slavery. So would you come and set our hearts free today?